Hey guys, if you can think about how you found this podcast, maybe it's on Instagram or TikTok, maybe someone shared it with you. I don't run ads for the show or have sponsorships, so the only way this grows is through word of mouth. If this was valuable for you in any way, my only ask is if you could share this with someone who you think would help their investing journey or business. Thanks a lot, and let's get to the episode. Hi, welcome to another episode of STR Like the Best. I'm Michael Chang. I'm very excited to welcome my friend Ryan Bakey from Learn Like a CPA. Ryan is a very accomplished CPA and real estate investor, has a number of investments in short-term rentals, in RV parks, and we're going to get into a lot of this into in this episode. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you jumping on. We were talking before the show about all the different tax strategies and how we've each grown our respective short-term rental businesses. I'm really excited to, to have this conversation. Before we start off, just tell me, just give the audience, what do you, you know, tell us a little bit about your real estate portfolio and about what you're doing at your CPA firm. Yeah, so my real estate portfolio, it all started with a house hacking, which is how I would recommend any person in their 20s to get started with real estate. And I actually funny story is I actually used a, we'll get into it, but I use a combination of house hacking, seller credits and cost segregation to basically buy my first rental property for free because I was able to utilize some of the passive loss rules based on my W2 income to offset my W2 income and get money back. And so that's how I started. I started with a house hack. Then I bought a four unit and then I bought my first short-term rental. First one short-term rental was in Ohio on a lake. And then I bought another one in just outside Washington DC area. And then at the time, my largest purchase price was only 450 grand. I scaled up to a $3.8 million campground in Branson, Missouri. And then recently, a few months ago, closed on a $2.5 million RV park in Colorado. And I'm under contract on a little over a million dollars short-term rental in Miami, Florida now. Wow, that's really impressive. And you are at a tender age of 25, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So that's... I remember what I was doing at 25 and it definitely wasn't, I wasn't buying a multi-million dollar real estate projects. Super impressive, Ryan. How has your knowledge of taxes helped you scale so much? I, mean, I would imagine being able to structure things in a tax efficient way has really helped you scale your portfolio in such a short amount of time. Yeah. I always explain this to people. It's the roadmap to wealth, right? So we're driving along and what's stopping us? Tolls, and having to stop for bathroom breaks, right? Like tolls and bathroom breaks. And you can really think of that as like the IRS. So every single deal that we do, there's a silent partner and he's known as Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam's gonna take his cut unless we're strategic about the investments that we make, when we make them, who we do them with and et cetera. And so I always, I always tell people this, it's not how much money you make, but it's how you make it. That's why they always say Warren Buffett pays less in taxes than his secretary. It's not that he actually pays less in taxes per se, but it's his effective tax rate, the amount of tax that he pays on every single dollar it is less than his secretary's because look at all his investments. It's businesses, stock investments, Berkshire Hathaway, real estate. And so he has a less effective tax rate than his secretary does. Yeah. Now, and I think that's a really important point, right? It's the silent partner question point, right? Every deal, especially once you have Uncle Sam in, in your pocket, if you almost are purposeful in the beginning on how you structure that. So 
let's it's a little off topic here because i do want to hit the short-term rentals but is there a reason why you did kind of art, your investments in Branson and in Colorado? Are those even more tax advantaged than short-term rentals? Because I, I remember reading somewhere where yeah. RV parks are like 65% or of the purchase price can be bonus depreciated versus generally 20 to 30% for a, a general kind of residential short-term rental. Yeah. So I would say there's three major benefits to investing in an RV park or a campground over than just a traditional short-term rental, if you have the capacity to do. So the first one's gonna be cash flow, right? So your typical short-term rental deal, people are trying to pencil them out anywhere between 20 to 30% cash on cash is what's normally expected, right? Some people have lower standards, some people have higher standards. You know, in both of these campground RV deals, we're seeing 40 to 45% cash on cash return wow. compared to short-term rental, traditional short-term rental. So that's number one. Number two is from a valuation standpoint. And so this is what I, I argue back and forth with Facebook, with people that, on this all the time. But as of this podcast, we're filming on 420, 2023, a national holiday, I guess, not for me. But short-term rentals, as of now, they are going to be valued. When you go to sell your short-term rental, it's going to be valued based on sales approach, which means they're going to take the single family homes in that area and not based on the amount of income that you can generate on the property. Because in a traditional multifamily, commercial, or business, you're going to be able to sell it at a valuation, at an equity multiple of what you're able to drive in NOI or net operating income. For short-term rentals and non-traditional rental markets, they're typically traded based off sales approach. As opposed to if you have an RV park or a campground and you can drive your net operating income through, we have coin and laundry, we have fuel sales, we have additional gambling. We have If you can generate and drive net operating income, you can sell for a way higher valuation than the sales approach to traditional short-term rentals. And the third benefit, the third pillar is tax benefits. And so when you have a, let's say my campground, for example, so we bought the land, we bought the land for, let's say 900K, and we're going to build $3 million of buildings, camp clamping, tents, RVs, all on that land. And so what I just said right there, clamping tents and RVs, because they have a useful life of less than 20 years, as opposed to a regular short-term rental, it means they can be bonus depreciated and written off in the first year. And we don't have to wait to recoup our costs over 39 years. So let's just say, for example, you've got a $4 million short-term rental and you're only depreciating that building over 39 years compared to if you had a million dollar land and you had $3 million of tents and RVs, you can write off that $3 million in year one rather than having to write it off over 39 years. And so the, the tax benefits of RV parks and campgrounds are literally, I would probably say three to four X that of a regular short-term rental. Okay. So let's dive in there a little bit. And maybe this, let's dive in there because actually there's some questions I want to ask there. I told, obviously I understand getting multiple, getting a multiple versus getting a multiple on cash flow versus getting a, just the equity appreciation in property. What I see as, these for most investors, a real advantage in STRs. It can be maybe you pencil twenty five percent cash on cash. It's the financing, right? You are putting in ten to twenty percent down, so you're effectively levering five to nine times your initial equity. And versus a RV park, for example, where there's probably significant capex that you're putting in, right? Like you bought the land. You know, I don't know your deal exactly, right? But say you buy a land for a million, say it has existing paths or whatnot on there, but you got to put another million in there. And that will, you know, obviously that's a lot of more cash that you need to put into the deal 
versus a million dollar SDR, for example, you're really just putting in 100 to 200K. How do you think about that? Though? And obviously the financing is different, right? There's no 30-year term at a subsidized Fannie Freddie rate versus you're getting a floating five with a tower at the end. So how do, how do you think about that versus maybe your first short-term rental in Lake Erie? Or sorry, in, 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 in Ohio? Yeah, um, the financing is honestly the biggest hurdle when it comes to commercial clamping and RV parks because the banks, they want collateral and the bank is not going to come take all of our tents. They want real property that they can secure their interest against. And so typically, mm -hmm. I'll cut to the chase, but what got us to the closing table for the financing was having a was really having a money partner, somebody to come in that had a lot of cash in the bank that could basically guarantee that debt. Because like you said, it is hard to get a bank to want to come in and finance. Typically, you're going to have to do a combination of a few things. And this is what we used in the past. Uh, small, small local commercial banks that are going to want to have an interest in that area. They want to see that undeveloped <clears throat> 15 acres of land get built into something where economy's flowing, money's moving around, changing hands. You're going to have a combination of strategies like seller financing. So we've used seller financing on both of our deals to help it get funded. Mm -hmm. So yeah. small commercial banks are going to be willing to loan on that seller financing from the previous owner and then SBA. So SBA will do business loans for RV parks and campgrounds. If you can prove that you have a good team, prove the financials of that business and the SBA, if you're, if you have a woman partner or a woman investor, the SBA gets special loans, to woman owned businesses and companies. And so we were able to utilize some of that, some of those terms and grants in our deals. Got it. So look, and not to say, I'm sure it's super, once you can get over the line, they're really, obviously they're cash flowing 40, 50%. Which kind of tells me a few things, right? One is it's obviously just less competitive. It's a less efficient market, right? It's less competitive. If it's easy to get in and out and people see 40, 50% cash on cash returns, like those will get bidded away, right? Those will, the prices of those assets are going to increase to where you get to 20%, 20, 15% of more normalized cash on cash return. And then that's where, that's the balance that, at least from my perspective, it's, it's, they're more like on the, on the traditional resi STR side. It may not be as profitable, but from a return on equity perspective, it may be similar to what you're seeing on a, a different type of asset class, right? Just because there's a lot less mm -hmm. equity that goes in, the financing is cheaper, more readily available, but you're going to have to overpay because again, if that, if financing is really cheap then, or, and available, then prices generally increase. Prices up. Yeah. Always. And that's why you see like kind of Fortnite and that's funny thing that he, when we were looking at like STRs in Mexico, for example, I've seen a ton of those. They're always like trading at like 200K, 300K. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, why is it so cheap? Because you, you have to buy it in you, cash. Because you got to buy it in cash. <laughs> exactly. You, you, you're not going to get financing from a Mexican bank generally. And I think this is important for, and this is probably a more advanced episode, but this is, this is the thinking that goes into when you're looking at different asset classes. There's actually a reason why things are priced this way. It's a pretty, most people are pretty smart, especially people already in real estate own multi-million dollar assets that can understand the math. There's a reason why if you can get over those humps, you can get seller financing. You got to convince a seller to finance you on the way back. You have to convince the SBA to give you a loan and go through that, all that arduous paperwork. And you got to find a money partner that you have to convince and trust that, you know, they're going to backstop or your financing for a nice fee, I presume. But those are the things that you have to get through in order to do that versus a short-term rental where you just go and if you have a W-2 job, you literally just go to any old mortgage broker and say, I want to buy this, this rental property in the Smokies, for example, and gets done in three months. But I think that's good. I think that's really good to walk through that thinking. 
Tell me, let's go back to short-term rental land though. Your first deal, right? Sounds really neat deal in Ohio. Tell us more about that. Like what, what is it? And I like to kind of get into details, like how much you pay, what's it worth now if you want to disclose that or even what it's trading at and what would the return profiles look like? What is the return yes. profile? Yeah. So the first deal came about because we've been like myself, my dad, and my brother have been going to Ohio to fish every year. So we have a yearly fishing trip. We were staying about 20 minutes from the lake and we were paying, I want to say we were paying $300 a night to stay 20 minutes from the lake, had to get up, get all of our gear, drive to the lake and then get on the boat and go fish. And I was seeing like all these properties in the area were 200,000 sub $200,000. And it's like, this is literally right on the lake. <laughs> I should be able to at least charge $300 a night yeah. for a property that's right on the lake. And I bought, you know, it's kind of weird because I asked the fishing captain that we have, I was like, Hey, what do you think about me buying a rental here? He was like, cause the locals, they really don't like short-term rental owners because it just drives the price of everything up. People that are trying to live in these areas, you got a bunch of people from California and New York coming to buy real estate, all cash. And that's just shooting the prices of everything up. Yeah. And he didn't really like it. But anyway, so I bought a property uh, to be paid. Uh, it's either $200,000 or $205,000 is the purchase price. I put about $30,000 into it. And it grossed the first full year. It grossed right under 60,000 bucks was our gross. And I think I want to say my net after my, my net after everything it's all said and done was about twenty six thousand dollars cash flow after the mortgage after That's the mortgage bad. payment. Yeah. Right. And go ahead, sorry. So then my so then fast forward to because I've owned the property now. Let's see, this will be my so the first year gross sixty, the second year did about sixty six, and the biggest difference there that we actually secured a midterm rental stay after the peak season. So we were able to get a we were able to get a travel nurse to come and stay in there for three grand a month, which was able to push us over that hump. And then like I said, this year I'm on track and I want to do about seventy five this year on that investment. You're gonna put a hot tub there? We do have a hot tub, yeah. Okay. That, 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 that's a new thing. Everyone needs to get a hot tub. <laughs> and that's what we noticed in our market too, because for a while I was looking at it and I was like, Hey, there's no properties here that have hot tubs. And that could be the differentiator. Yeah. Our main differentiator was we're the only place in Ohio that could sleep 14 people. So that for a while, that was our claim to fame. But after a while, people, more people started buying in that area. So we had mm. to basically get the hot tub to separate them. We also have what's called the mud room for fishermen. So for example, when you come and your clothes are wet and you want to dry them off, we have a special area in the garage where people can like, okay. clean their clothes and stuff, which not a lot of the other people in the area have something like that. So that's cool. That kind of leverages your experience, like fishing out there with the, with your family. I can imagine I went, I've been fishing twice in my life, but I remember like having to get really? a super, yeah, I'll show you the, I'll show you the, I'll show you the tuna that I caught after the show or I'll put in the show notes. No, but I remember getting really early. We had to be at the lake at like six o'clock. So I had to get up like oh, super yeah. early to get out there. It's way better, especially the second day, right? After just a few beers, to kind of be right on the lake versus uh, huffing 25 minutes in a car over. or over. Tuna's fun. Tuna's fun, man. Tuna's fun. It was my first ever trip. And I think we got a tuna. It was off, it's off of Duxbury. It's off the coast of Boston. A buddy of mine from business school took us on a fishing trip. It was really cool. And then like we, we ate and made sashimi, brought it back to school. And it was a really fun, fun experience. But anyways, back to taxes and short-term rentals. Let me just transition to a conversation a little bit. There's obviously a ton of, there's a ton of benefits in investing in real estate just broadly, right? Like it is a, yeah. the government wants to build out undeveloped land. So they make it tax, they make the tax policy conducive to people building, taking land and building it and building on top of it. And short-term rentals, actually, there's some specific 
advantages of investing short-term rentals without going to a ton of detail, maybe just highlighting a few things, some, maybe some common misperceptions, I think that people have that you obviously work with a lot of clients in your firm, you're very specialized in short-term rentals. What are some, what are some of the common misconceptions that people come in and ask you, wait, no, this is not right. This is actually the way it works. Yeah, I would say the first thing, a lot of people think that they, they hear, real, hear, hear real estate is great for tax benefits, which is true. That's why the Trumps and the Buffets and everybody in the world owns real estate. But if you're a, right, if you're a high earner, say a doctor, and you know, you're making a quarter million dollars a year, t typically buying a rental property is not going to save you money on taxes in that first year. It is a passive investment in the sense that you'll have capital gains and you can borrow against it tax-free, et cetera. But if you're not what's called a real estate professional, traditionally, you're not able to really harness and use those tax benefits on the real estate against your W-2 income. Recently, like what we found is in the short-term rental space, though, there's a specific carve-out for short-term rentals. Specifically, if you rent the property for an average of seven days or less, the IRS Section 469, it doesn't see it as a rental activity. Instead, it's actually a business activity. And so if you can prove that you spend a ton of time in that business, and you rent it out for seven days or less, you can actually generate losses from the property and use it to offset your high earning W-2 income. Over the last two years, I've helped people navigate this strategy. I've helped people buy short-term rentals and generate $30,000, $40,000 of tax savings from that one rental investment that they can then use that money to go buy another rental property and then quit their job. Or one spouse, one spouse is able to quit their job because now they have $400,000 of cash flow coming in from two properties in the Smoky Mountains. Exactly. Uh, it's a funny, this is a funny story. It's, it's a, it, it's very interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to unpack it a little bit because it's exactly the strategy that I used, but the way that I found it was actually the Ryan and there are like two other people on Twitter that I follow. And this was maybe two years ago where I had to piece it all together myself. So I wish, I wish I knew you back then, Ryan, going to just ask you the direct questions without figuring yeah. it out. But this is the exact strategy that Liz and I use for our business. And being able, there, there's some more benefits if you combine, we do rent our arbitrage as well. So we rent apartments in Philadelphia and then we rent them on Airbnb, Verbo, et cetera, as well as own. And I'm going to focus on just on the owning part. It is extremely powerful if you can take passive real estate losses and make them non-passive, then you... That it doesn't have to be active, actually. So there's actually this little quirk. But if you can make it non-passive, then you can utilize that against a whole range of income and protect yourself or defer a lot of that federal tax income liability. So that's the simple concept that I want people to really understand is if you can, if you want to invest in real estate, the point of it is to, obviously, you want to make money on that real estate investment. But then to generate those tax losses, if you can make those non-passive, then that is a ticket to really efficient tax planning and being able to recycle. And instead of paying Uncle Sam, being able to take that and buy more real estate. And then I want to double click on another one of Ryan's points. So when you says spend a ton of time on real estate, so there are specific rules within that section on 469. There are seven different, is it 469? The seven different rules? Section 469 outlines the seven, seven material participation tests. Yeah. yeah, there's set. So, you know, obviously consult your tax professional, contact Ryan, contact or contact your, your CPA. But there's seven, if you want to do this, there's seven specific rules. You can, that if you hit either, any of them, you will qualify for that. The easiest one is the 500 hour, not the easiest one, but the most easy to understand is 500 hours. If you spent 500 hours on the business, then you qualify. There's six other rules on there which I won't go into detail on, but that is, if you can hit 
one of those seven rules, then the strategy really makes a lot of sense for you. And it really makes sense if you either, if one spouse, if you have, if you're married or you're following joint and you're following, if you're married and you have one spouse that's a really high W2 earner and one that isn't, or you both work in real estate, right? Not as a broker, but if you say both like me and Liz, we both are in short-term rentals, then th this tax strategy makes a lot of sense. And candidly, look, if you, if we have one partner that makes a lot and one partner doesn't make a lot and there, another partner is looking to do something else, this is a great way to, yeah. if someone's only making 50, 60 K a year, have a few short term, have a one short term rental, have them hit the 500 hour rule, which would be really easy if they don't have a W2 job. And then if the other spouse makes a million dollars a year, W2 or half a million dollars, you're automatically going to save 125, 125, 100K, 125K in taxes. And it's almost kind of guaranteed because that's some of the way the tax rules are applied. So again, I know we're getting into a lot of details here, but I, that's why I really, I was really looking forward to this conversation with Ryan. Like we both come from a finance background and there's just a lot, if you really get into the weeds here, there's just a ton of ways to make money and to keep a lot of that with short-term rentals. Ryan, am I missing yeah. anything? I would say I wanted to touch on the point that you made. I That's like my biggest talking point and pet peeve is that you you don't want to buy a real estate property solely for the tax benefits. I tell people in like my tax academy program or my coaching programs that, you know, or clients too, right? You want to buy a deal that's going to pencil out based on your metrics, whether it's a 20%, 25% cash on cash, whatever your metric is, you want it to pencil out that way. And then the tax benefits are just gravy on the top. I've seen the tax benefits take a 25% cash on cash to a 45% cash on cash. I've seen it in high W-2 income situations. I've seen it go from 30 to 72%. In, in that RV park deal I was talking about, 45 to 123%. It's absolutely insane what the tax benefits can do to your real estate investments. But you want to buy a good performing real estate properties because otherwise, if you just keep buying dogs, solely for the benefit, the tax benefit, you're going to have a portfolio of low performing properties exactly. that you're, you're going to just spend too much time in to manage. And to get, I guess, to nerd out in the finance part of it, you mentioned that depreciation has to be paid back at some point, right? It has to be recaptured. And so the idea is to leverage debt, inflation, taxes, and time value of money to your advantage. If I'm in a, if I'm both spouses are working here, let's say I'm in a 40% tax bracket, it's where I'm at. And I can offset federal income taxes at 40% now with the idea of, even if I had to pay that same 40% five years later, let's yeah. say I save $100,000 in taxes this year. And I was, I would have had to pay, let's say I save $100,000 in taxes in year one. And even if I like strike out in year five, I had to pay that all back. I just took $100,000 from the government interest free. And I actually came out ahead because the $100,000 that I'm paying back in year five is not worth the same as $100,000 in year one. Number one, because I'm going to take that hundred grand and I'm going to make way more than a hundred grand on it. And number two, by the time I go to pay that money back, whether it's five years, 10 years from now, it's inflation's already eroded at that. Exactly. So when I go to pay it back, it's actually worth less. So that's what like rich, wealthy people understand that I'm trying to like teach everybody else is understanding how to leverage debt, taxes, and inflation. Three biggest yeah. things that will build wealth so much. Wealth. I, I, yeah, I, I could not, I could not agree more. And I readily admit that when I was in investment banking, I, I went to school, got my, got an MBA in finance and worked in finance, worked in banking 10 years for 10 years. And I think a lot of people face this issue when they're working a job that takes all their mind share and time. You don't have time to understand these issues 
like these advantages, these options, because you're just working, like you're working so much and you're just trying to climb the corporate ladder and you have family. And like, by the time that, you know, you just don't have, you don't have the mental bandwidth to, to explore these options. And if you work in finance, you really just, you're very limited to just investing in index funds. Right. And even yeah. if you're not, you just don't have the time to really dig into so a lot of people invest in syndications and things like that. And then there's anything wrong with that. Those are all good. They all, if you find a good sponsor or whatnot, they'll make you money. But then you just encourage people that if you have the time, just like, or just know that there's these options out there. And even if you're busy, it really is a really great return on your time to understand how taxes, inflation, all these things are working in your favor, especially if you're in a high tax bracket and in a W2 job where you just don't have a lot of tax flexibility. There, there, there are just other things out there that can really save you, can save you, can save you taxes and help you get to your yeah. financial goals a lot faster. The uh, one, one question I want to ask, actually, I, I just thought about this and then I, I've been meaning to ask this question for a long time. So can you, when you bonus depreciate, when you pass away and you pass it on to your kids, does that restep, does recapture still apply there? No, that's the best part about uh, it, right? Uh, so that's, so that I asked somebody on the other call, or I was on a call a few days ago, somebody asked, how do I get out of paying the depreciation recapture? And so all we're doing is kicking the can down the road forever, right? Yeah. So if I sell, let's say I sell an asset. Okay. What can I do? I can 1031 exchange it into another one to defer the recapture. I can buy another property, depreciate that property and use that depreciation to offset the recapture from the first one. But then I'm still, I just kicked the can down the road. I, Robert Peter to pay Paul basically, right? Yeah. But the only way to actually get out of the recapture, I would say two most common strategies is to either, yeah, pass away, right? Very morbid strategy. But when you pass away, your assets go to your beneficiaries with, with a tax-free stuffed open basis. And so currently that rule for federal purposes is 22 million bucks. So on a federal level, if you're married, you can pass away with $22 million of assets and your beneficiaries get them all tax-free with the stepped-up basis. Yeah, I didn't, so th th that was my question, that stepped-up basis. Is it the is it the cost basis? Oh, I guess it's both cost basis. Stop but is the it, fair market value. Yeah, yeah, but is it, you know, but is it like I bought a property for 500K and now it's worth a million, it goes to that five, that 500 goes to a million or is it the tax, the tax book value? I don't know the exact term, but- It'd be your book my, value. The book like, value. Let's say you, okay. Yeah, you bought a property for 500, Let's say you fully depreciated down to zero, zero, you know, yeah, because you owned it for thirty years, and then you pass away. Your beneficiary gets it at a million bucks tax, and then you go back and depreciate that again, and it starts right over. Uh, <laughs> don't tell my daughter this. Don't give her some. <laughs> uh, don't give her but, any ideas. So I'll say the two things like that we utilize for clients, as opposed to that as a strategy, is yeah, it's very morbid. Nobody wants to hear that. But yeah. as your assets going up in value, you're constantly borrowing against the appreciated value because remember. Yeah refinancing and taking out debt and HELOC is not a taxable event, generally speaking. So you're just going to keep kicking the can down the road, or like I said, 1031 exchange. Another common strategy that we try to utilize is it's hard to plan for this because you never want to not make as much money as you did in the past. But let's say I'm in a 40% tax bracket now and I retire. So my income drops, right? Because I'm not working anymore or I get married or once one spouse quits working their day job. So then you're just in the lower tax bracket. So maybe I go from a 37% top bracket to then getting married and my spouse doesn't work. So now I'm only in a 12 or 22% tax bracket. That would be a great year to also sell off some of your assets because you're just in a lower tax year that year. So yeah. you basically borrowed money at 37%. You got tax benefits at 37%. 
And then let's say you're a year where you don't make as much money. Now you're only paying them back at maybe 12 or 22%. Yeah. Not only number one, did you get a 15% gain on the spread there, but also time value of money because the money that you're paying back, let's say a bonus appreciating asset in year one, and I go to pay it back in year five, let's say I'm in a lower tax rate in year five. And because I'm paying the money back in year five, as opposed to year one, again, I'm leveraging two things. I'm leveraging tax rates and I'm leveraging basically inflation at that point. Exactly. Exactly. No, that, yeah. yeah, no, that's a great way to think about it. And I think that's for people, especially if, if you're in sales, like where it's your income might be more variable, or if you are maybe even a real estate broker, right? You just give more variability in your income. Finding if times, if you think of times are gonna be a little slower, great way to to do that and that, that's a great point and look there's so much to dive into um yeah there, there's one other thing i wanted to cover rental arbitrage so the strategy that's popular that we've used for a long time personally it's where you rent and re-rent pro you rent a property from a landlord and with their permission you re-rent it you furnish it re-rent it on as a short-term rental put it on airbnb and verbo what are some of the, if you think about it from a tax perspective, where are the tax advantages of, what are some of the tax advantages that that strategy provides versus buying? Yeah. So I would say, so number one is because you're renting real property, even though you don't own it, it's still considered a rental activity, right? So it's considered a rental activity. It's not a business activity, which means your arbitrage is going to get reported on your schedule C of your federal tax return and not your schedule C. It's, oh, I'm sorry. It's going to get reported e. on E, not yep. your C, right? Yep. And which means it's not going to be subject to like self-employment tax. It's not going to be considered a business. It's going to be considered a rental activity, which means you can use losses from other rental activities to help offset that arbitrage income. So it was, it's actually funny because when I spoke at the SGR Wealth Conference, the first one back last year, 2022, Sean Rakovich, he's very common in the arbitrage space. He's like, hey, how do I offset this amount of income in arbitrage? And I said, well, you got to go buy this amount of property that's going to get you this depreciation that can offset, let's say a million bucks or whatever it was, right? You can use the properties that you own, or you can use syndication losses to offset your rental arbitrage income, right? So if you make a million dollars doing rental arbitrage, as long as you have a million dollars of depreciation coming from somewhere else, yeah. you can net the two together on your schedule E and you'll pay $0 in federal income tax. Can you bonus? So you can can you bonus a regular? You can bonus a regular rental property. Can you bonus a? You can't bonus. Your, you can't bonus your primary, right? Not unless it's used as a rental. Use a rental. Okay. okay, got it, got it. So that's a that, that's again. So that's a great strategy, to right? So if you are if you own rental property and you want to get into rental arbitrage, it's a great way for you to one sidestep all the self employment tax. So that's fifteen point three percent that you save there automatically. Yep. And two is if you have, say you have a rental property that, and you're sitting on a bunch of unused passive losses, right? Because you can't, they don't offset against capital gains or earned income. If you do rental arbitrage, you're able to basically get all that money tax-free and utilize that existing tax asset there that's underutilized. Again, there's just so many different things that you can do with short-term rentals, with real estate that aren't available in other types of businesses. And definitely aren't available if you're working full-time job. Just again, I just, we want to introduce these possibilities out there to you so that if you are interested, if you're in a high tax bracket, if you're in a tax situation where you have some flexibility, um, reach out to Ryan, reach out to a qualified CPA, reach out to me because we've done it before and happy to talk you through what we've done. So Ryan, as we, as, and this has been a great conversation, as we wind down 
this episode, I'm going to ask you the traditional closing question I asked to all my guests. Short-term rentals business is a team sport and we all need help along the way. What was the kindest thing that someone did for you along your path that's really helped that you remember or has really helped along with your journey? Yeah, I think it was definitely the, my mentor now. Um, he grabbed me, literally pulled me out of the corporate world. And you probably already know what I'm talking about, but uh, his name is Bill Faith. And he he saw who I was working at W2, scaling my CPA firm on the side and like posting in the Facebook groups and stuff. And this man literally took me and he's like, I want you to come speak in front of a hundred people. Right. So I was teaching tax strategies. I was 23 years old, still working at Deloitte, teaching tax strategies to people who were twice my age, three times my age. And then he's okay. Now I want you to do it in front of 800 people, which was at the STR wealth conference in 2022. And so that, that has been the nicest thing that somebody's ever done to me in the short term mental space by far. That's awesome, man. Uh, Bill's yeah. a great guy. I've learned, I learned a ton from Bill as well. This has been a great conversation, Ryan. And what's the best way for people to reach out to you with their questions? Yeah, so you can follow me on all social media platforms. Just learn like a CPA. So that's going to be Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, learnlikeacpa.com. You can go on there, download some free tools that I have, check out my blogs and my podcasts. The podcast is going to be Learn Like a CPA Show. And then lastly, I have a Facebook group. If you go on Facebook and type in tax strategies for real estate investors, we got about 5.5 thousand people in there. So these are arbitrage. We have fix and flip, real estate wholesalers, short-term rental owners, and we're all just learning from each other daily. Perfect. I will put Ryan's socials and his Facebook group in the show notes. So if you have any questions there, please feel free, please engage with him there. Ryan, thanks, thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciate it. Awesome. It's been great.